Thank you. It is a good pleasure to be with you folks here uh, this morning and for the next couple of months, God willing. I know I know many of your faces, but not all of them. I know some of you, uh, a few years ago, we had some classes on Wednesday nights that I was teaching, and I had the pleasure of meeting several of you at that time. Uh, it's good to uh, meet now the, uh, the balance of the group here and uh, a few new faces that I haven't seen before. Hopefully we'll get to know each other over the next few years. By the way, I, I know it's always a question, uh, who, what, how, what do we call you? Uh, call me Mark. That's fine. Uh, if, if, the, uh, if you want the kids to uh, have uh, some sort of, it can be a pastor Mark if you want for the kids and such, but uh, as far as uh, the rest of you, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm one of you. I don't want to be somehow higher than the rest of you, so Mark is fine. Uh, so uh, uh, hopefully we can come to know each other well. And, uh, per, and I, I, I know it's hard to say this, but uh, if you have need of a pastor, I know we don't know each other well, uh, but uh, feel free to call me, give, give me a call, give me an email, give me a text, whatever the case may be, and uh, we'll, we'll do our best to, uh, to meet any needs that you might have over the next, next couple of months that we're here. This morning, I plan to begin a series uh, that deals with a somewhat neglected portion of the Old Testament, which in some way may be a redundancy. Much of the Old Testament is neglected, period. There's reasons for this, some good reasons, some not so good reasons. We, uh, we all know that changes occurred when Christ came and fulfilled the law and instituted the new organization we know today as the church, and there's some debate as to exactly how much changed. Uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but that's not the point of this series. The point, however, is that everybody agrees that something changed when Jesus came. For instance, despite the fact that the Old Testament explicitly set aside Saturday as the Sabbath and demanded Israel observe it under pain of death, the church actually was, this building here was empty yesterday, and it's full today, which is Sunday. Something happened. None of you came this morning to church, dragged the sheep to the front of the church, and slaughtered it on the church. We almost had a slaughtered animal, but it wasn't, <laughs> wouldn't have been a, a kosher one here, right? So none of you did that, despite the fact that that was the requirement back in the Old Testament. Few of you have ever traveled to Jerusalem, despite the requirement. Men had to travel to Jerusalem three times a year to offer sacrifices there. Most of you have clothing this morning that is made of mixed fabrics, cotton, polyester, wool, acrylic, whatever the case may be, despite the fact that the Old Testament and Leviticus 19.19 explicitly forbids this. So why is this the case? Well, we all recognize that the law no longer has the same authority over us as it did on Old Testament saints. We operate under a new rubric, the law of Christ, Details spelled out in the pages of our New Testament. And for this reason, even though, the fact, even though the Old Testament has six times as much material as the New, we tend to concentrate our time there in our preaching. And part of that is with good reason. I've, I've always attempted to, uh, when, I, when I have the opportunity to you know, control what happens in a service, is like to read, have a reading from the New and a preach from the Old, or vice versa, preach from the new and, and have a reading from the old. And so uh, that's, that's what I've sort of uh, lined up over the next 
several weeks that we can, that we can do that so that you're introduced to the whole of Scriptures. Because the whole of Scripture is profitable. That's what 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3 says, right? All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, even though it's not all applicable. Now, perhaps you, you might have heard me say something that's just nonsensical to you. It is profitable but not applicable. But let, let, take, for instance, that law against mixed fabrics in the Old Testament. Is it directly applicable? And I think all of us here would say this morning, no. It's no longer directly applicable. But let me ask a second question. Is knowing this information profitable? Well, yes, it is. Those rules were put into place because God is holy. He wanted his people to be holy. In fact, he was so holy and wanted to so impress his holiness upon his people that he made what seemed to, be, seemed to us to be rather silly rules to demonstrate his holiness. And let me ask you that. Is it, is it profitable for us to know about the limitless holiness of God? Very much. Very much. It's of great profit, even though it's not applicable. And we live in a day in which things that are not immediately applicable are thought to be unprofitable. Right? You can see it as in, in something as simple as the, 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 the local curriculum at your, at your high school, right? Okay. Are there Latin? Well, no, it doesn't help me make any more money, so forget, forget the Latin. Uh, making your kids take piano lessons, that'll never put money on the table, uh, food on the table or money in my pocket. In fact, it's probably going to take money out of my pocket in order for that to, to happen. And yet, some people do it. Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it you know, profitable for us to know all the countries of Asia and their capital cities? No, no, we, we can look that up on Google. So why bother? And I think we tend to bring this kind of thinking into our understanding of the Christian scriptures. Studying those 613 Old Testament laws are not going to help me live my life today, so let's not bother with them. Why don't we just chuck the Old Testament and stick with the New? Um, this fact for, uh, the fact is, however, we gut the Bible of much of its profitability if we remove some of those sections of the scripture. And, and by the way, I think that's important. It was mentioned this morning in the adult Sunday school at least, uh, that we have devotions. I've always thought that word to be an interesting one because I think we often think of that time we have in the morning or in the evening or whatever time it would happen to be that you set aside uh, to read your Bible and to pray. We tend to think of them as applications right? And we call them devotions. But if we read our Bible and there's not something there profitable for me, some, something that I can do today, then, you know, you sort of have to keep reading until you find something, right? But the fact is, I think they're well named as devotions. Because the, the point and the intent is not entirely, I don't think there's any wrong with finding application in the scriptures, but sometimes when you read the Bible, you're not looking for applications. You're looking for reasons for, for why your devotion towards God would grow. And so it's with this understanding that we look at the historical book of Ezra over the next eight weeks with a 
one-week detour for Mother's Day in there so is, is planned here. And, it, it, and uh, we, we, we find that this book it really is only the first half of the original book in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, in all of the ancient Jewish manuscripts, we find Ezra and Nehemiah fused together in a single book, which would have been called the Book of the Returns. And the reason for that is because it is divided up into the three returns of Israel from captivity. Now, in order for us to talk about the returns, we have to understand where they're returning from and why. So, a little bit of background here today. Some of you love history, the rest of you need to. So, uh, so, so, so that's what, that's what we, have to, we have to, we have to sort of set the table for this one. So we might spend a little bit of time uh, with background today and, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll get a little bit more of the meat of this as the, uh, as the series goes on. You'll remember uh, from your understanding of the Old Testament that Babylon destroyed Judah and specifically their capital, Jerusalem, and even more specifically their temple uh, very thoroughly. Uh, so there were a series of three invasions that they made, the first in 605, the second one was eight years later, and the third one, the most decisive one, occurred in 586 B.C. This, this resulted in the complete ruin and abandonment of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the removal of most of the living Jews there to Babylon uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. <clears throat> the reason that the Jews went all the way to Babylon because, was because of a Babylonian policy of how they treated their conquered people groups. The Babylonians always uprooted the people from their land and actually displaced them somewhere else into the empire. And the reason for this was to keep them demoralized. Okay? If someone was in, is in their own land, then they can start to get that urge to defend it as their own. Uh, whereas if they were displaced into some foreign place that wasn't theirs, uh, they would remain demoralized and Babylon would have less trouble controlling those people. So that was, that was the goal of the Babylonians. And so we find here, uh, as, as you read through some of the books of the exile, uh, these stories of people longing to return to their homeland. Daniel, of course, when he, he opened up his window so that he could pray toward Jerusalem, knowing that he was actually supposed to be there. The scriptures required that, but he couldn't. And so he did the best thing he could. He opened his window toward Jerusalem and prayed in that direction. We find the, the, uh, the, the people... Uh, the, 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 the people of Israel, normally a very musical people, were hanging their harps on the willow trees and being asked to sing, and their response is, how can we do this? How, how can we sing in a foreign land the, the songs of our homeland? And so, so we, we find that these people are in a place of deep despair. It, it actually looked like the nation of Israel was going to cease to exist because as the years passed and as as a, as a full generation takes place, we find that the Jewish people are starting to be absorbed into the people that they lived among. Okay? It looked like the Jewish nation was going to cease to exist, not only as a nation, but as a people group. And there was, and there was, a great, dis there was great despair. But 50 years later, 
a, an, an event that can be described as scarcely less than a miracle, the great invincible empire of Babylon experienced a stunning collapse to the people of Persia. We've actually got two major sources that describe the fall of Babylon to this, the king of Persia, Persia named Cyrus. The first of these is a secular source. It's the Cyrus Cylinder. You can still go see it today if you want. The British Museum in London. The second source is the Book of Daniel. The Book of Daniel tells us a great deal. And, the, and even today, we recognize that those are the two major sources for understanding, even, even in secular life, these are the two major sources for understanding what happened to Babylon so that it was so suddenly, at the, at the zenith of its power, suddenly uh, was, was taken down by this nation of Persia. We find, if you look in Daniel 6, we're not going to turn there this morning, that the ruler Belshazzar was celebrating the Babylonian New Year, and at the height of the festivities, a giant hand appeared. Remember, the giant hand appears and starts writing on the wall. Mene, mene, teko uparsin. And uh, the king does not understand what the words are, why they are appearing on the wall, and so he summons all the wise men he has in his, in his empire, and Daniel, of course, is among them. And he asks, what, what, what do these words mean? Daniel, of course, is able to tell him uh, that it means that there was a death sentence against Belshazzar himself. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your empire is going to be taken away from you, and we find it in that very same night. The Persians, by a bit of trickery, managed to get into the city and killed Belshazzar that very, very night. Okay? Uh, the, the story is, is told here that the Euphrates, the mighty Euphrates River, was diverted in its course. It had, it had been the water source for the city, just in case it would ever come under siege, and the water ran underneath the walls, and they diverted the the river so that they were able to bring an entire army underneath the walls of, of, uh, of, of Babylon while everyone was partying or asleep, and they were able to immediately, without a shot being fired effectively, uh, take over the city from uh, the, the Babylonians. So the Persians are now in charge. The Cyrus Cylinder tells us further why there was no resistance. Not only was it a brilliant military tactic, but we also read that the residents of the cities, including the princes and the governors, and I quote here, were glad that Cyrus the king was, was now king. Their faces lit up. Okay, so they were not pleased with how Belshazzar was running the empire, and they were quite pleased that someone new was going to be in his place. Just like the Iraqi people, who drank champagne and pulled down the statue of their deposed leader a few years ago. So also their direct ancestors basically did the same thing when their oppressive leader, Belshazzar, fell 2,500 years ago. <clears throat> this is why Daniel, who was the third in command under Belshazzar, remains third in command <clears throat> under the new king, Cyrus, which would not seem possible an, an ordinary transfer of power like this. So he's the right-hand man of the uh, Persian king Cyrus and then his 
his, his son Darius. And the Babylonians, of course, we know were harsh captors. They, they, their, their goal was to keep their peop, the, the people they conquered demoralized. But the Persians, led first by Cyrus and then shortly thereafter by his son Darius, were in a relative sense very kind rulers. They were not extorting allegiance by treating their captives cruelly, but rather they attempted to earn the allegiance of their conquered people groups by satisfying their needs. So if you had to be a slave, and that's what they were, you would rather have the Persians as your owners. And so it's with this background that we come now to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah in which we find these three migrations of the Jews back to their homeland take place under the rulership of the Persians. This was not something that happened just to the Jewish people. Other people groups were allowed to return to their homelands as well. So there was a shuffling, a reshuffling of the population of the whole empire as people were allowed to return to their homelands. But there does seem to be some special emphasis placed, obviously in the scripture, but, but elsewhere. We, we find that there is special emphasis placed on the Jewish people being able to return to their land. Uh, we find the first of the returns, which is the bulk of the book of Ezra, the first six chapters, where we'll spend most of our time, is under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And uh, during this first return, the temple is rebuilt. The second return takes place under Ezra the scribe, the namesake of the book, under whom the scriptures were restored to their rightful place as the guide for the nation, and the, uh, the temple practice and the law were, were, uh, were reassumed as the with their governing function in Israel. And the third was a return under Nehemiah, of course, uh, described in the book with, of that name, Nehemiah. And under Nehemiah, the walls of the city were rebuilt, and the covenant community was essentially restored. Now, these didn't happen in rapid succession. There's actually a gap of 80 years between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. As we have time, we might spend a little bit of time talking about that, that little gap. That's where the events of Esther take place. And we may talk about that a little bit, depending on, on how, how, the schedule, how the schedule works out. Um, and uh, we, we find then uh, that uh, there's a, there's the, the covenant community is restored. Now, perhaps you might ask, why have I chosen Ezra this particular book, for our next series of messages. And uh, you might ask the same about the reading of the Scripture this morning. Uh, we're going to, over the next four, four weeks, read through John chapters 14 through 17. And it's because both of these books speak about a rebuilding after a setback. So, yeah, it, there was a, there's a transition uh, setback, really, a time of unease for the nation of Israel here in Ezra. We find the same thing is true of the disciples in John chapter 14 to 17. What is, what is Christ doing during those four chapters? He's, he's, he's pulling out all, all, all the stops to prepare his people for his departure. Okay? And I think there has to be at least some connection, I think we can feel, with both groups. We're in, a, as a church here, we're in a, in, a, in a transition. 
Uh, there's been perhaps what you might describe as a setback. There's a, there's a void of, of leadership. And perhaps there is a temptation to wonder, what is God doing? And perhaps even, is, is God done with us? Yeah. And perhaps that thought might come through your mind. And what I'd like to do with both of these passages here, but particularly here in our, in our, in our sermon series in Ezra, is to say, no, no, no. This is a time for regrouping, for retooling, for making ourselves leaner, for preparing for the next chapter of ministry. And hopefully we'll be able to do that as we work our way through the book of Ezra. They, they came back because of promises. Now there's was a covenant promise. Our promise is not wrapped up in a, in a covenant per se, but there is a promise that God will build his church such that the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the promise we have. And that promise governs the, the, the resolve with which we continue to do the work of Christ. And so it is, with a rather long introduction here, that I want to begin with the first bedrock principle that stood as the very foundation of the attempt of the Israelites to rebuild, and that's this. God is in absolute control over the affairs of men. So that's the first principle. God is in absolute control over the affairs of men. Let's read together the first chapter this morning. Ezra chapter 1, if you're not already there, we'll go ahead and read the entirety of it. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the king of heaven, God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem." Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and cattle and valuables, and from all that was given a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out all the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Midranath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all up out with the ex exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. I want you to know very right up front that as we preach this morning, the first two points of the three points that we're going to look at this morning come from the first verse here. 
Uh, the rest of the chapter we're going to uh, treat uh, more swiftly, so don't worry uh, as you look at your, as the, at your watches and the clock and find it. it the, the, the clock's going faster than the sermon seems to be. Uh, so don't, 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 don't worry too much about that. First thing I'd like to look here is at the prophetical setting. Uh, you know, all of these historical books of the Old Testament usually set us up with the historical background. I think that's, uh, the, the original readers would have understood that implicitly. They were living through it. They understood it. And the reason the information is put there is so that we can be reminded and put everything into a context. And we find here there's not only a historical context, but also a prophetical context, if I can call it that. Because it starts here with an appeal here to the words of Jeremiah. What had God said to Jeremiah? <clears throat> we find not only had God said something to Jeremiah, but also to Isaiah about these events that were going to take place in the book of Ezra. I'll invite you first to, to turn to Isaiah chapter 44. This is the first of three passages here that give us a prophetical backdrop for what's going on. We find that in the, I'm not going to read the entirety of this passage here, but Isaiah 44, starting in verse 24, and then all the way in through the first half of chapter 45, we discover here a detailed introduction to this man Cyrus, this king of Persia, and what he was going to do for the people of Israel. Now, again, we could make a whole sermon out of this section, or perhaps even more than one. Nonetheless, there's a few things I'd like to, to pull out. First thing I want to pull out is something that's not actually written, but rather when it was written. The book of Isaiah was written 150 years before the event, events of Ezra. I know it comes afterwards in the, in, you know, in, in, in the printed Bibles that you have, uh, but we recognize that the Bible is not written, come, doesn't come to us in entirely a chronological order. Uh, the prophets are sort of set aside. And so the, uh, the Isaiah prophecy was made 150 years before the events of Ezra take place. Now, we can all make general predictions about the, you know, the future, right? Uh, you can even go on to AccuWeather or National Weather Service and, and find out what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. And, you know, usually they're pretty good about tomorrow's weather. You know, you go three, four, ten days out, they have no clue. But usually you can get a, you can get a, you get a general sense of what it's going to be like tomorrow. But here's the thing, as we, as we keep going out, the further we go, the, the less reliable they come, the things become. That's true of any prophecy that we make. In fact, God tells us in the book of James, right, that if we're going to make a prophecy about tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to go out and do this or do that, we should preface our remarks by saying what? If God wills, because we know our best prophecies uh, may not come true because there, is, there are forces at play that don't always let us carry out the plans that we have made. And yet we find here, this is a prophecy made 150 years in advance, and it's not one of those general prophe prophecies from like Nostradamus or something, right? Okay. This is a very specific prophecy. 
that includes the name of the king. I mean, it, yeah, he wasn't alive yet. He wasn't going to be alive for another hundred years. And yet, Isaiah is able to write down exactly the name of this man, okay? Who was going to allow Israel to return to their homeland? There, there, there are no variables for God. You know, we've got variables. We never know exactly how things are going to unfold, but God does. And that should give us great confidence, right? God knows every variable. In fact, he has determined every variable. He knows how things are going to unfold. When we are unsure of what the future is going to look like, as, as, as we are here right now, we, we, we don't know what the next chapter of this church is going to be and who's going to be standing in this pulpit in the, in, for, in the next several years. We don't know. We've got question marks. But we know this, right? God knows. There are no variables for God. Everything is unfolding precisely and exactly as he has planned. Okay? And so that, that, I think that should give us great confidence as, as, we, as we operate here in our church today. Second, in addition to the precise detail, the length of the time between the prophecy and the fulfillment, I'd like you to see the language of divine sovereignty in, the ver in, in, in these verses here in, in Isaiah. God's sovereignty is absolute control over the entire universe has a perfect has a has a perfection that's very evident in these verses god determines everything he determines everything on his own he doesn't simply look down the corridors of time and make decisions based on what he sees he actually determines it how why do i say that because that's the language of these verses if you're in isaiah 44 verse 28 he says of cyrus you are my shepherd i you will accomplish what i please. Well, that's very pointed language. Chapter 45, verse 1, God, again, describing Cyrus, calls him his anointed one and says, Cyrus, I take you by the hands and will subdue nations before you. This is, this is, this is not the language of God looking down the corridors of, God, corridors of time and saying, yeah, that's what's going to happen. I'll predict it. No. He says, this is the way I'm going to orchestrate those events. Chapter 45, verses 3 and 4, twice he says, I summons you by name so that you may know that I am the Lord. So that you may know that I am in charge, perhaps we could say. Even though you don't acknowledge me. Okay. This, this is not something that Cyrus is accomplishing here. This is something that God is accomplishing through, through Cyrus. Same thing in verses 5 and 6. I am the Lord, there is no other. I strengthen you, even though you do not acknowledge me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. I am the sovereign. I am in charge. And there is no other. Verse 7, I create light. I create prosperity. I create calamity. Verse 8, I make it rain when and where I want it to rain. I save people where and when I want them. Verse 9, I am the potter, you are the clay. This is the language that God uses. Man's not sovereign over his own affairs. God is sovereign in the affairs of men. And some of us perhaps don't like that, but there should be a grand confidence that we take in the fact that we are not in charge. 
God is. And it should lead to a great sigh of relief. I am not the one responsible for, for making my world. God is the one who is in charge. If I could take you, though, to another prophetical backdrop for this chapter, this is the one that actually Ezra appeals to right here, uh, and that's in, in Je Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. We find here, the whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. You can go a couple more pages over in your Bibles to chapter 29. We find this repeated. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you hope and a future. Now that last verse has been misused in... in in just about every uh, Hallmark and Hobby Lobby thing that you can buy. You know, that, that, that verse is a very specific promise for the nation of Israel, right? Okay. I, am going, I know my plans for you, Israel. After 70 years, you're going to be restored. But there is a principle there, right? There is a principle there. Just as he has plans for Israel, he has plans for us too. So, I, so, so perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't be so hard. On the, on the folks who, who, who put that verse in so many, uh, so many different venues there. Now, much ink has been spilt trying to figure out these 70 years. What are these 70 years? Um, there are three, of course, we talked about three separate times that uh, Babylon invaded Israel, the last of which was 586, and then there are three returns. Uh, but, if you, but if you take all of those numbers and, and say, okay, is there 70 years? Be there's, there's no gap that's exactly 70 years. This is troubling to us uh, because uh, we find that Jeremiah is rather specific, 70 years. Daniel understands, remember, Daniel actually, you know, he, he's the one who figures out that when exactly this is going to happen because he is, he's calculating the 70 years. So, so where do they come up with these 70 years? Years. It seems likely that we're probably looking at the wrong numbers when we're looking for the dates of the Jewish captivity. It says in each of these, in, in each of these passages, in both passages in Jeremiah and also in Daniel, that the 70 years are declared for Babylon. Okay? And if you know the history of Babylon, you know that it started in 609, uh, when, uh, when the, the Babylonian Empire, when they finally overthrew the last strongholds of Nineveh, and, it, and, 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 uh, and we find that exactly 70 years later, uh, these, the events of Ezra take place. And so 70 years takes place exactly, exactly 70 years later, and we find that these prophecies come true. In fact, Jeremiah and Ezra build their plans on the fact that God is going to restore his people exactly 70 years after uh, Babylon came to power. 
And so we go to all these passages for one purpose, and that's this, to show you that from the very first book of Ezra, we see that these prophecies work together for one purpose, to show that God is in absolute control over the affairs of men. He's in absolute control over the affairs of men. And this I find in the very next phrase of verse 1 as well. The Lord moved the hand of Cyrus, king of Persia. God acts independently to uh, to fulfill his prophecies. He doesn't react to the independent acts of men. He actually moves the hearts of men. We find this is true uh, in a general principle. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. And as with our previous point, I'd like to use this phrase as a springboard to visit several other passages. Now in this book, not only did the Lord move the heart of the king of Cyrus to perform his will, he also moved in the hearts of kings on two other occasions. Turn over a couple of pages to chapter 7. Chapter 7 of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing in the king of the, the hearts, the king's heart, excuse me, to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended his loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So we find here uh, that, uh, that God, is in ch- God is in charge here, moving here. Not only the, hand, the, 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 the heart of the king Cyrus, but here in chapter 7, the heart of the next king, King Artaxerxes. We find the same thing to be true if you go to the book of Nehemiah. Remember, Nehemiah and Ezra are one book in the Hebrew canon. So look at Hebrew, uh, it, it, at uh, Nehemiah 2, verse 8. Nehemiah 2, verse 8. We find, I have trouble with my, uh, my, my eyes are going bad here. I can see the words, but I can never see the little numbers here. So I'm trying to find my eight. There it is. Okay. So there's a letter to Asaph, the peak keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. So we find at the beginning of each of these three returns from exile, whether that be with, uh, in this case, Zerubbabel, the second case with Ezra, and the third case with Nehemiah. God is at work moving the hand of the king and also moving the hand of the people to accomplish all of his purposes. Now we as humans do not like to think of ourselves as being at the mercy of someone else. We like to think of ourselves like William E. Henley's famous poem, Invictus, that we are the masters of our fate, the captains of our souls. But we're not. We're all directed in all of our ways by the hand of a sovereign God. But this shouldn't unnerve us. 
This should not be an unnerving thought for us. Fact is, if we were left to ourselves, we would never choose God. In order for us to choose God correctly in our hearts, like Cyrus did and Artaxerxes did, God had to move. Our wills had to be changed. Our affections had to be redirected so as to be positively inclined towards God and what his intentions were. We, as we grow in faith, it becomes clearer and clearer to us that we're not in the clutch of a tyrant. We're in the hands, the grip of grace, without which we would be hurtling towards the gates of hell. How glad we should be that God is in absolute control over the affairs of men. I did promise that we would finish this chapter, so let me survey the next ten rather quickly. We find here in the rest of the balance of the chapter that Cyrus recognizes the power of God. Now, we don't need to make too much of that. Isaiah says, remember, when we went back in Isaiah chapter 4, 44, that Cyrus did not acknowledge God, okay, in an absolute sense. History tells us that Cyrus ordered the rebuilding of temples and shrines for all the pagan gods of all the peoples that he was sending home, not for Israel's God alone. He didn't bow down to the God of Israel alone. Rather, he sought the favor of all the gods of all the peoples. He was a pluralist. He was, he was, he was not a believer, a Christian. But even, even though we can be certain from Isaiah that Cyrus was not a believer, God was still using this pagan to accomplish his purposes. And you'll find as we go through the rest of the chapter that Cyrus restores many of the gold and silver vessels that had been stolen from the temple earlier, even collected a rather hefty tax from his own people to speed the Jews on their way, allowed them even some limited self-government by granting them a king, a prince by the name of Sheshbazar, whom we'll uh, introduce further next week. But thirdly, and perhaps most important to this message this morning, that you'll notice in verse 5 that God not only moved in the heart of Cyrus, he moved the hearts of the Israelites to accept the invitation, to make the long and difficult trip back to Israel and to reestablish God's covenant community there. And here we find that God not only moves in the hearts of kings to accomplish his will, he moves in the hearts of his people as well. As we come to the end of our sermon this morning, we come in one sense with virtually no application. We've introduced a number of characters who are going to show up throughout the story, but we found in virtually none of them anything in their character to imitate. That wasn't the goal. There aren't really any human heroes in this story, at least not yet. But I hope you come to the end of this session with the realization that the hero of this story, and really the hero of every Old Testament story, is God himself. It's not the people, it's God himself. And it is your sovereign God that I want to elevate before you today. You see, the one great thing that we share in common with these people who lived so many years ago is this. We serve the selfsame God. This God who knows the end from the beginning and can predict 150 years before this fact the exact events that are going to occur, even including the names of the people involved, this God is the same God that we serve today. 
Now, he may not announce prophetically in advance the details that we would love to hear from him right now. Nonetheless, we can be absolutely assured that he is in as, is in as great a control of the situation and the circumstances of today as he was 2,500 years ago. He is in absolute control over the affairs of men. And if we know that, we truly believe that God is in fact in absolute control over the affairs of men, then we'll have taken the very first giant step towards the reconstruction, the reestablishment, the, the new chapter, the next chapter in the history of this church. May God bless his word to that end. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful this morning that you are a sovereign God. Lord, we, we, we rarely believe that to the degree that we need to. We, 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 we simply don't believe it at times. Uh, even though we have it on paper and we affirm it over and again, when we walk away from uh, hearing a sermon like this, there is going to be a great tendency among each one of us to try and scramble to do things ourselves. And a, and, a, and, a, and a thought that perhaps God isn't in control. Lord, help us to recognize us, truly believe it, help, help us to see it over and again until it becomes routine to us to know that you are in absolute control over the affairs of men and having known that then, to have the security, the confidence, the stillness to face an uncertain future. Lord, I ask as we, as we look forward to uh, these days ahead when you unfold your purposes, your ongoing purposes for the history and for the future of this church, Lord, help us to be uh, delighted to know that in fact you are in control of your church and fulfilling your promises that you will build your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, uh, we ask that you would uh, give us this confidence, we pray on this day. In your name we pray, amen.